0: From Red Kite Prayer, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, Celine Yeager, a.k.a. the Fit Chick of Bicycling Magazine. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives, and, uh... In this case, I want to ask you about how caffeine fits in my life. <laughs> uh,
1: like early and often and daily? Oh, so kind of like both times? Um, daily. Well, yes. I, I, or maybe I'm speaking for myself. I'm not, I'm unsure. Um, As I sip my espresso.
0: Yeah, so uh, as we're talking, I'm drinking a Yerba Mate tea because I need an mm-hmm. extra little kick today. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a Guayaquil, which is made nearby in Sebastopol. Those guys rock. Um, wow. A whole can, oh God, here comes the rabbit hole, and I'm really going to try to get us back out of it quickly. I've been reading up on caffeine lately and the caffeine content of various drinks, and Mm -hmm. I found out or figured out, I did the math, oh my God, I pulled out a calculator. I am such a nerd. A whole can has just about the same amount of caffeine as a cup of coffee, six ounces, from Starbucks, which for me is quite a lot. If I want a caffeinated beverage to have the absolute maximum impact, as if I'd never had caffeine in my life, how long do I have to cold turkey before I go back to caffeine?
1: Did you just tell me that six ounces of Starbucks is a lot? I don't drink coffee. Oh, for God's sakes! Well, okay. Um, we almost had to put an E on this show. <laughs> we almost had to put a little explicit mark, but I—I I caught myself. Self editor. Um. I would yeah, little filter just popped up right in time. I w- I would say maybe five hours, and you'll be you'll be just fine. Like, and I'm really, actually, I'm not even kidding. Um, Wait, but I thought you, you built up a tolerance to
0: caffeine. You know, if you were
1: having you, uh, you clearly have no tolerance for caffeine. <coughs> I mean, if you don't,
0: <laughs> I'm just I'm I, they
1: they say that I'm direct, yeah, and I guess I am. um very, I mean, seriously, you do build up a tolerance to caffeine. A couple a couple thoughts here, though. Uh, one is that a, a study on this topic has very, very recently been done. I think, if not this year, it was 2017, where they went into endurance cyclists to, to say that exact same thing because a lot of people have this notion, because like myself, I drink far more caffeine than you do, and I, it doesn't... I, I, I've never had a great effect from it. Like I can I can drink quite a bit without getting jittery or having Ill, any ill effects. But I still get the benefits when I race from it, for sure. Mm. And they did a study on people like myself, like yourself, all kinds of people, and they washed them out, you know, the same kind of thing, like did a caffeine fast is what they call it. Um and some people they didn't. I I can't remember how they double blinded and all this, but the end result of the study was even habitual caffeine drinkers got the same result. As people who are not habitual caffeine drinkers Ugh. as far as their performance. So you you don't need to make yourself and you it doesn't sound like you would, but some people make themselves sincerely miserable because they they are caffeine habituated. So if they go without it, the week before, say their century or race or marathon, they're they're getting headaches, they don't feel you know, they're tired, and it's it's not why why add to an already miserable taper week? Where you're already grouchy and terrible by then taking away caffeine from yourself, right? Like, I don't know if you get grouchy huh. and terrible when you're tapering, but a lot of people do. Like before a big event, I get super grouchy, super grouchy. I get miserable. Really? Um, Wait.
0: Okay. Okay. Oh, Back yeah. in oh, the my rabbit God. hole. I get, I get insufferable. Uh, okay. That thought to me, given who you are, is sort of amusing, but I know. moving right along. <laughs> so cheerful. Um, out Yes. Uh, uh, why in a taper do people get grouchy? I don't ever recall me getting grouchy. I, it could just be well, that I'm a, a butthead, but that's a different matter.
1: No, two a, a few reasons. I mean, they're legitimate. One is that you've gone from this very high level of training to a very reduced level of training, maybe by half. Oh,
0: oh. You know, I so see. you okay. are, you
1: are you are resting more and that outlet is gone. You're also, if you're like me, getting mental about your race, if it's a big race that you're tapering for days in advance. So now you're getting mental about your race. You don't have that outlet. You're trying not to burn any of your matches or test your legs, you know, going into the event and you just get edgy. And um, so now if you want to now take away my caffeine on top of you know, like, what do you, what are we get to? Should I not have chocolate either? What are we going to do to my brain chemistry? Like in this whole week, <laughs> going into so it it's just not yeah. So it's it's not necessary, but that's it, people do. And you also like, you know, you get a little. You, I I turn into a tick. I start like <laughs> I, I glycogen stores. Oh my god! I glycogen store so easily that you know it's all good. But now I feel fat. I feel bloated. I don't have my outlet dude i mean wow it's just it's not pretty those those three four days before a a big thing and the more it's funny i've and dave can attest to this (laughs) the more miserable i am when i wake up and i've just learned to frame it as potential energy ready to go because i wake up in a pool of race misery like when it's when it's something that i care i am I'm hating everything. I'm like, why do I do this? I hate it. Racing is dumb. It's wrecking my life. I'm going to do this one race, and then I'm not ever doing it again because it's just destroying my very existence. And, of course, I'm signing. Like As soon as the gun goes off, I'm like, and then I'm signing up for the next thing as soon as I'm done. You know, like, it's it's 20 years of process. I've got it down to a science. (laughs) But, um...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, the funniest thing I'll hear this week. <laughs> Got it down to a science. So, there you have it. Oh. <laughs> mm. All right. Well, I just learned... <clears throat> I think I just learned
1: more you, about you
0: than I did me. Um,
1: well, was there a reason that you asked the question? Because well, like, So... We're talking about caffeine again. Yeah. So why.
0: my normal caffeine intake is ass soda. You know, every now and wow, then.
1: Wow. Really? You're not a coffee drinker. No, no. And the, I the, don't know that about you. Can we still do this podcast and be friends? You do drink beer. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, that's the, fine. That's fine. The
0: great joke of my life is how my mom used to own a specialty coffee and food store and like all the best beans from around the world she carried. It was 20 odd, you know, wow. literally dozens of different coffees. And I would walk into her store when I was back in Memphis and she'd go, hello, this is my son, Patrick. He doesn't drink coffee. It would come out like a hashtag. <laughs> and Wow. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I've never gotten on board with coffee. My mouth refuses to embrace it. Uh, huh. okay. So it goes. So for me, uh, co- soda soda is my source of caffeine. Generally but your, speaking, then yerba
1: mate is a lot of caffeine for you oh, because yeah. soda does not have much caffeine. Okay, so per ounce, even like a Mountain Dew. I mean, you're yep. going to talk about like some ridiculous stuff like that has probably your higher levels, but a, a, I would imagine that a yerba mate has quite a bit more caffeine. But also Mm -hmm. it's interesting that the caffeine from tea is balanced out by the L thing that there's another substance that I'm going to butcher or forget that gives you that calming effect. It's like an alert calm that's very unique to tea. Yes. And I can't remember the name of the anine it is. It's one of the anines. Um, So I'd be surprised if you got the same ill effects of the jitteriness and that kind of like edginess that that not that at all coffee can give you when you overdo it yeah. from that kind of a tea
0: yeah so i was looking this up coke is roughly two milligrams of caffeine per ounce mountain dew is just shy of five mil- i think it was four and a half milligrams per ounce so mountain dew's double that mm-hmm. of coke and then uh, the yerba mate from Guayaquil is, is like nine and a half milligrams per ounce. But then a six okay. ounce cup. Now, that's per ounce. A six ounce cup of, uh, of Starbucks. Oh, wait, I did sort of the math wrong. A six ounce cup of, of Starbucks is, I believe, 20.9 milligrams of caffeine per ounce. <clears throat> but you've got. It's a usually six like
1: hundred milligrams of caffeine or somewhere in there, between fifty and hundred, right? Per cup of coffee. For, for that's for most usually what they figure.
0: Seventy-five. And a six-ounce cup of Starbucks yeah. ends up closer to one hundred and twenty. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And then sixteen ounces of Guayaquil. You know, it's a pretty fair amount of caffeine, and that's the biggest jolt I ever get. And the thing is, I love that effect, but I don't want that effect daily. You know, when I need the boost right. and I don't want to be jittery, I, I keep one or two Guayaquiz in my refrigerator pretty much all the time. And so if I get up and I know, okay, today I got a kick butt either on the bike or, or in the office, um, that's that's my secret weapon. Cool. Yeah. Speaking of you peaking for events and whatnot, you just did Iron Cross.
1: I did. It was Sunday. And? Yes. And I uh, I had a good day. I uh, I won, said Iron Cross. So that <laughs> nice. was a good day. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. It, it's funny that and this is. It's going to sound. There's no way it will come out right. But I've won four of them, and I didn't even realize that I've won four of them. It's been going on for 16 years, and I just happened to look at the results page, and I was like, ah, I've won it four times. That's cool. And I've got on the podium a couple other times. It's uh. It's an event that just really suits me. It's 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 very it, it goes on a lot of technical terrain, single track terrain. It's in a part of the country I know well. Uh, it's usually very cool because sometimes heat is not my friend. Mm. Um, I can sometimes I do pretty well in the heat, and sometimes it just kind of buries me, like stomach wise. So um, it's usually quite cool, and I I can just find a rhythm and just go. So yeah, it was pretty exciting. It was. Uh, um, great event really fun it, it was it was slightly snowing on the start line I almost what yes I was driving out it's about two hours from my house and last year I did it um, and I won last year but it was uh <laughs> it it poured it was pouring and like forty degrees last year which was terrible 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 like I went The race goes down this big, giant, giant, giant hill. It's a paved descent where you're hitting easily 35, 40 miles an hour. And to do that 35, 40 miles an hour in the pouring rain when it's 40 degrees... I, like, I just wanted... It was so difficult. I mean, it was hypothermic. I was scared. And as I was driving out to the race this year, it was pouring rain and 40 degrees. So I was like, I'm not doing it. I almost turned around. I don't know how many times. The
0: woman, I went out... Wait, wait, wait. Let's get this straight. The woman who won last year almost went home.
1: Yes. Because I was not going to do it again in the pouring rain and 40 degrees. I mean, that's just... It's terrible. So, anyway, I, I, I didn't. I didn't turn around. I got there. When it started snowing on the start, sleeting, the things hurt my face as I was riding over to the whatever was falling from the sky, hurt my face as I was riding to the start line. I did not. I was like, I'm just going to do it. And then it stopped raining and stopped sleeting and snowing. And it actually ended up being a perfect day. So, damn. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. What so, a I got. Though so it does lead well into my poll. It does lead well into to what I was hoping to talk about this week with you, which is, which is which is temperatures. Let's talk temperature because the temperatures. I, I don't know what, where you live. The temperatures don't undulate that much, perhaps only but, only thirty to forty degrees a day. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, because it's dry.
0: It's not that dry. It's it's no? drier than some places. It's not New Orleans, okay. but yeah, Santa Rosa this whole area of Northern California, we can easily vary in temperature by 30 to 40 degrees in a day. Uh, a, okay, a, I forget a, how far north you are. A bad day is 20 degrees of range. But, you know, on the in the summer, when it gets up to 100 or above 100, you know, in the morning, it's still going to be at least yeah. 60 degrees. Uh, okay. So we... But we don't get... Seasons in quite the way you do, but it's, I mean, I have gotten it wrong so many times. Left when it was 61 degrees in long sleeves, thinking it can't possibly warm up that much on my ride. Suddenly it's 75 and I'm thinking I am going to pull over and use my saw
1: to cut the sleeves off of this jersey. I, I I fully I fully understand that, and that and it's kind of it's where I'm going, but not not quite. Because here the temperatures are legit falling into fall at this mm-hmm. point. Like mm-hmm. we're getting it's quite literally there was frost on my pumpkins this morning. Um, you have pumpkins, so. I do. You grow pumpkins? Well, I don't have pumpkins. No, no, no. Oh. I like to carve pumpkins, so we have like jack o' lanterns. Oh,
0: okay, okay. I thought um, you were like an amazing gardener all of a sudden. Okay.
1: I'll, I, I, dude, you don't have to be an amazing gardener to grow a pumpkin. I can just throw one in my compost pile, and I've got pumpkins. They they, they grow pretty well themselves. You'd be surprised. Who knew? Um, yeah, I did. But anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> okay. So this this has come about for for a couple of reasons. Is it's. I, you know, I saw a, um, and I think you saw it too. There was a Facebook post from Andrew Bernstein, you know, one of our mutual friends, who yep. has recently moved out to Colorado, right? Yep. And it was public service announcement: A Boulder 45 is a Pennsylvania 60. Hashtag overdressed, hashtag, hashtag sweaty mess. And it, 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 right? It cracked me up I, because I, I did the, ex- I did the exact same thing last time I was in Boulder. It was like last, I think it was November or December, and the forecast was what. I was considering was going to be legit cold. I was supposed to go on a Flagstaff ride with this guy. Um, And it was like the low 30s. So I had brought everything I owned. And I dressed as I would for a low 30s ride in Pennsylvania. And I cooked all the way up Flagstaff Mountain and became a shivering frozen mess all the way down. Because I just, I brought like, it was just wrong. He was wearing almost nothing. I'm like, what does he know that I don't know? But then he had this little wind shell in his pocket and he pulled that out at the top. But it was just... You know, they say it's not the heat, it's the humidity. Well, that's not that's not just in the summertime, and it's not as alliterative, but it, it's not the cold, it's the humidity. Yeah. You know, the East Coast cold, it seeps into your bones cold. Like, when it's low 30s, it's not, I'm just going to put on this nice little wind jacket and be comfortable. It's, mm-hmm. it's legit. Um, so that really got me thinking, because when I first started riding, I would... You know, I would I would look through Colorado cyclists, which is which is a great resource. But think like, what are these people wearing, and how are they not freezing? I'd look at the gloves and look at what they're wearing, yep. and then you know, I, and it it got me thinking further because of the stuff I write about. Like when I when I when I go to get gloves, when I go to get something, everything is temperature rated, right? This is good till forty. This is good till thirty. But then, in, my question is like, who's thirty? Who's forty?
0: Yeah. Well, and then you've got the factor of, like, some people are just more comfortable at 45 degrees than other people.
1: That is true. That is true. But it's just, you know, when you, I don't know, when you go to test products or when you go to recommend, do you you even know? Do they test them in real world? So if it's made in Colorado, it's being tested there. If it's made in Minnesota, is it tested there? Do they all make them somewhere else and test them in a lab? Like, where does that even come from? And what does it mean for recommendations and... It, no, it just was like an interesting conundrum because it, it takes mm-hmm. me a good couple of weeks to figure out how to dress for temperatures.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting. So uh, I wrote a kind of a how-to book for beginning cyclists called the No Drop Zone some years back. Okay, and one of the things that I said in there was to consider humidity as just a complicating factor. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether it's hot or cold, you know, if it's if it's Hot and dry or cold and dry, it's pretty easy to deal with. But the moment it gets really humid, like 50% or more, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, you know, above 70%, it really gets interesting. Then you just need to consider that it's kind of an exponent on whatever the conditions are. It's going to okay. make you less comfortable no matter what the temperature is. And that dovetails with an interesting conversation I had with someone at Pearl Izumi just recently. They used this really interesting climatic wind tunnel to test all of their
1: gear recently. See, that's super interesting to me. I think that's really interesting. The testing they is did. It, is, it, is it like a humidor too? Does it have like that kind of element to it?
0: Name a condition.
1: Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's like
0: that. Snow. I'm standing
1: on the start line and it's spitting frozen pellets in my face at 40 degrees. Yep.
0: They can do that. That's easy. That's easy. Wow. They can create okay. San Francisco fog. That's cool. It's amazing. Well, it, you know, we say that's and cool. And that's why
1: their stuff works, because they sent me that Amphib stuff and I'm like, this is legit. It's oh. actually keeping me warm uh, there, here. There was a it says it's going to keep me warm. Yeah. There
0: was a long stretch there where Pearl wasn't quite hitting on all cylinders. Yes. And Mm -hmm. the last two years, they are hitting on all cylinders. And part of it, uh, certainly with their latest collection, is due to this place. uh, It's the University of Ontario's Institute of Technology has this thing. And they'll rent it out to anybody. Car companies. it's, It's sizable. You can put a whole car in there. And... The upshot is that they were putting cyclists in there for four-hour tests. That's awesome. Whatever the conditions were, they'd stick you in there for four hours. Every cyclist that they got did two sessions, except for some of the people were so rattled by their first test, they wouldn't get back in for the second test.
1: <laughs> I am freezing to death. Yeah, am, yeah. Because, I mean, you know... I'm shaking. It's it's 35
0: and sleeting and snowing on you, and, you know, you can't pedal all that hard to generate all that much heat. Uh, and right. what they're trying to determine... The big thing that, that Pearl Izumi learned was that the key to keeping you comfortable is your perception of being dry. You don't actually have to be dry. You just have to feel dry. Interesting. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, they're they're really killing it, and you know it's one of those things where I have a, a, nearly as much respect for what they're doing as I do ASOS, but at you know generally speaking, half the price. So the the cost to respect factor is higher with Pearl right now than it is with ASOS. Uh, I agree, and I'm crazy about the work that ASOS does. So I I say that with with no small degree mm-hmm. of of footnoting. <laughs>
1: That's cool. Yeah. No, that's super cool. And that makes a lot of sense because they are one of the few companies, when they send me stuff that's like, this will keep you warm through winter, I trust, I, I know that's true. Like, it will keep me warm through a Pennsylvania winter.
0: Yeah. 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 I uh, I just got a, a look at a bunch of stuff from the 2019 winter uh you know fall winter line stuff that's not out yet and whoo i can't wait till they've got samples they've got some amazing wow. pieces and uh some of the women's pieces as differentiated from the men's it's not just a different cut they do little details and whatnot to give it kind of a more feminine flair i'm just really really impressed with what they're doing sweet yeah so yeah, they have yeah. Um <clears throat> all righty. Well, so when we record this dear audience, we're on camera so that we can see each other and I I can see her uh remarkable uh <laughs> expressions from time to time. Um and Celine can see whatever variety of wreck my office is and I think right now you can see like a big stack of t-shirts and a bunch of luggage. <laughs> well, reason is because Saturday night I get on a plane for Taiwan. No, I'm pretty excited for this. Uh, I don't go to Taiwan. This will be my other time to have gone to Taiwan. Now, if I was I've a, never been. It's uh, it is one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had in my life, and so I'm like rushing into you know weirdness factor of ten, and can't wait. What's especially funny to me about this is that if I was a product manager for a big bike company, packing for a flight to, to Taiwan, it would just be Thursday. They do this so yeah. much. I mean, I know most most of the product managers I know are there at least six times a year. And most of those trips are, you know, they're at least a week, but usually more like mm-hmm. two, sometimes three. It's It's crazy their commitment to that place. So this time I'm going over to do a bike tour. We're going from the northern tip of the island, Taipei, to the southern tip, Tainan. And we're even taking on, this is the part I'm really excited about, we're taking in Taiwan's non-industrial eastern side of the island, where it's much more mountainous, the communities are tiny, it's not industrialized. And so this is kind of what my pull is really about. I'm going to be there for a few days after the tour is over and I plan to use that to do some factory visits. I love seeing how bicycles and bicycle parts and all the things associated with bicycles are made. Um but yeah, I'm going to do some factory visits and I'm still in the process of lining up what some of those visits are. And I thought oh, maybe I should do this a little different way. Where do you and the listeners think I should go? Who should I visit? Hmm. I can't guarantee that I'll get in the door at any of these suggestions, but I think it could be sort of compelling for my contacts to say, oh yeah, I've got a whole bunch of readers stateside who would love to have me visit your place. So... I say, you know, I want to hear your ideas, but this is a solicitation to our readers. Go into our comments section and tell me that you want to see me go visit Giant or. I was just going to
1: say, couldn't you kill a lot of birds with one stone if you just went into the Giant uh, facility? Like, I I can try. Does that work? I mean, I know they. Man, they they make so much stuff there. I don't Mm -hmm, know. mm -hmm. Yeah. If you get this, I don't. I I can't even. I have some giant Dr. Seussian vision in my head of how that factory must look, but I have no no real it's mind's eye of it. Yeah, I didn't. So I've
0: been there once before. the the other trip that I did to mm-hmm. uh, to Taiwan, we got to visit a uh, giant. Got sort of inside the front door, not a whole lot further. Further, we we saw um, an assembly area where you know mm-hmm. once. Once frames are actually made, the parts are being assembled onto the bicycles and they're on this sort of carousel thing that travels through. Uh, think mm. of think of those things that you see at the uh, dry cleaners that take all the clothes yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's just yeah. it's mostly flat. It's all on one level. And they the bikes are moving and guys are putting and women. It's not just dudes. Uh People, but it's human beings. Human beings putting components onto the bicycles as this thing is moving by them. To top that off, uh, as someone who's worked as a bike mechanic in a bike shop, I need the bicycle to be relatively in the same position it will be on the ground. You know, so vertical, the bars above the wheels, these are upside down and at weird angles and... I can't even think that way, and you know mm. they're also doing some, some maybe on the rudimentary side, but they're doing a certain amount of like derailleur adjustment even, and I don't hmm. know how they're executing
1: that. How quickly is it going? Um, like how fast are they, is that assembly line moving? Two inches a second. So it's not super
0: fast, but it's in okay. motion. It's very visibly yeah, yeah, it's in motion. Yeah. You're not
1: having a jog to
0: keep up with it. But, you know, if you want, if, if having stuff still uh, is one of the things that you depend on to do good work, you will pull all of your hair out. Oh, wow, that's wild. I just, I, I look at that and it's like, I don't care what they're paying these people. It's not enough.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. <laughs>
0: so, uh, yeah, I've, I, we saw some interesting stuff there. I got a sense of some of the other bikes that were being produced by Giant. I don't know if they would take me into, say, uh, the, a portion of the factory where they were doing actual layup of frames. I've got some time here, cool. so I, I intend to ask. I have contacts there. We'll see what they say. So... Um, that's really it. I say go to the comments section and ask me to visit something, anyone, you know? yeah. I've certainly asked for, for stuff already. Uh, I got turned down by Marita. They they like didn't even want to know what it was I was interested in. They were like, a journalist? No.
1: Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. I imagine you'll encounter some of that. Yeah. But. And then there
0: were two different factories where people were more than happy to have me visit, except, well, you know that our is actually in China, right? It's just the corporate offices that are here. I was like, oh, no, no one had ever told me that. Okay, well, hmm. moving right
1: along. Yeah, and that's something I have no idea, honestly. I, I'm kind of ignorant about a lot of that, like what's where and exactly, so.
0: It, it turns out that there's there are some things that are not in Taiwan that I thought were, The way I so there's a, a translator who I met on my previous trip who has helped me with some of these contacts. She went to UCSD, so when she found out I was from California, she was like, Oh, I lived in California for a while. Really, really lovely woman, Ting. And so I will bounce stuff off her and she'll help me with the contact. Maybe she makes the inquiry for me, that sort of thing. And it's This entire thing is just, it's so interesting and different and bizarre. Uh, Yeah, so. Sounds amazing. I'm really looking forward to it. And getting to ride there and, you know, do riding that's not in the urban centers. And and Mm -hmm. I will say, riding in Taichung, wildly entertaining if you're up for bizarre. I I would chase the little packs of the two-stroke scooters around. So there's loads and loads of scooters in Taiwan. And I would just chase these packs around and, you know, haul butt through cities. Uh, Mostly Taichung. Yeah. And uh, they'd kind of look around at me like, what's this guy doing? I'm not so sure about (laughs) it. And then I would pass the family of five on the scooter. Right, right. Because... It didn't have that much horsepower, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I I just I can't wait for this. It's gonna be really interesting, and uh, I will certainly be reporting plenty once I do get back. Sweet,
1: yeah, all right. Paceline picks. Sure, let's do it. All right, my pick, my pick again this week um, is another documentary. Oh, um, yeah. Have you seen Free Solo?
0: Not yet. No, no, I want Not to. Yet.
1: I cannot say enough uh, good things about it. I, it's, I'm not a rock climber. I don't really know all that much about that world. I know people who are super into it. Obviously, I've I've tried it a couple times. It's never been my, it's never been my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I became really obsessed with Alex Honnold's story, the guy that um, made the mind-boggling ascent up Yosemite's three thousand foot high el capitan wall yeah. uh he did it last year no safety gear no ropes nothing just him climbing up that that sheer granite face of a wall which is i mean i saw i read the new york times piece and i i read a bunch about it and it's just like probably everybody just could not fathom it just could not fathom how somebody could could go there could just do that mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. You know, so I expected, I walked in expecting to have my mind blown in that way. I didn't walk in expecting it to be so thought provoking. Um, You know, Alex is extremely philosophical. uh, Mm -hmm. So it's like really compelling to listen to his points of view on life and climbing. And, you know, they, they actually show him getting that brain scan that he got that shows that the deep, the... Amygdala, the, the part of your brain I'm butchering the name of it that where fear lights up, yep, is, the amygdala. is thank you. It, that's what I thought is um, not. It's not as it's not dead. It's just not as active <laughs> as as ours. So his brain on that wall is lighting up probably the same way mine is going down a very technical steep descent on my mountain bike, like just enough that it's kind of fun and scary but not overwhelming. Right, so it just takes that much more for his, which is right, mind blowing in and of itself. Um, I also, Patrick, I think that you need to see it because it is probably the most personal view of someone in a true flow state that you'll ever see in your life, and you, it's, you can you can see it's it's like popping off the screen, like he is so in this state of flow when when the final thing, uh, the final ascent happens. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, none of us will ever get any close to what he's done there, I'm sure. You know, we won't even get a fraction close to something like that, and or maybe should we? But I do think that everybody can take home some lessons from what he did and how he did it and how he approaches things without a doubt even my daughter i took her and she was she she turned and she's like thank you for taking me mom that was really yeah i mean cool I, i i thought i was afraid maybe she'd get a little bored but um she was captivated by him and what you know how he approached life and what he did so super 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 good Yeah. Well, I mean, the
0: the documentary was made by the National Geographic Society. Yes. And so Mm -hmm. once I saw that that was the case, I knew it wasn't going to be just sensational, that it was going to be a serious piece of work. And at at that point for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to have to see this. You know, if it it had been... uh, I don't know. There are there are some more sensational and less less athletically rigorous outlets out there. Not Red Bull Media. They would have blended mm-hmm. the two nicely, but just seeing that it was the National Geographic Society, I knew this is going to be interesting, introspective, a really quality piece of work. And what I'd really love to know and you know, maybe this answers it to some degree is how much of that uh, vestigial amygdala that he has was by training or just by birth. Is is this something genetic uh, that was just coded in his brain? Was he? I think the born film that answers way? that.
1: I think the film answers that quite well uh, because they they spend some time with his family talking about his family. You get to see those interpersonal relationships, and then you get to see his training and and. If he doesn't outright address that, it it it's, it becomes very very clear that it's you know it's nature and nurture. That's probably not a surprise, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, the interp- There's a lot about interpersonal relationships in there that I didn't expect. Uh, parental relationships in there that I didn't expect. There's. It was interesting to watch the. Uh, philosophical and scruples and the, ra- the wrangling of the film crew other whether or not they should even be doing what they're doing in filming you know in creating this documentary and of <laughs> course they just were like he's gonna do it anyway so yeah might, you know but <laughs> we can't um, stop him right right so it was uh you know and it's funny like everybody knows he lives but it's extremely hard to watch at times. It's still sitting in the theater extremely hard. You can see people like turning away. I found myself turning away because it's very hard to watch. It's really interesting. Yeah, I,
0: I mean, I've done a certain amount of rock climbing. It's been a while, but when I was in New England years ago, uh, that was one of my other pursuits, and I wasn't willing to free solo the whole of, of the distance of what would be one pitch yeah right. once I was more than about fourteen feet off the ground i was like i'm i'm out where's my rope? I'm out, I want some pro. It's, it's not unreasonable, <laughs> and i just i know just thinking about like what I can do on a mountain bike, you put a two by four on the ground and I can ride a mountain bike on a two by four and not have any problems, not worry about falling mm. off and I can ride yep. the two by four perfectly. You lift that two by four three feet the, off the ground. I can't ride it. Not at all.
1: Yep. That's you're not alone. <laughs> and and it, yeah, it's yeah. For all the for all the reasons.
0: Yeah. So I yeah, I'm dying to see that. Film. Well, maybe okay. super
1: good. Yeah. Cool.
0: Yeah, super good. <laughs> Excellent. Well, as I've mentioned, I'm going to be in a plane in a few days, and uh, I've already begun packing, as you can see. Um, yep. I'm a slightly obsessive packer. I'm, I'm shocked. I'm not, I'm not particularly OCD <laughs> otherwise, okay? I Let me defend myself a little bit. Uh, but for me, proper packing is all about having the right item easily at hand and if you don't need it often or on short notice it can be buried away but i still want enough capacity to bring those things that i may not need right away but you know the the just in case the the
1: the physical cya as it were better Uh, to be looking at it than looking for it is what i call those things that's Mm -hmm. a that's a good phrase yeah yeah
0: um so, for the last year, I've been using some luggage from Thule's Subterra line. They make, honestly, an incredible number of items. It's it's so complete. You've mentioned that, and I've never seen any of their luggage. Well, that's the funny thing. You know, I, I keep running into people who are like, Thule? Backpack? Thule suit? Mm-hmm. Really? That's a thing? And I'm like, yeah, and this stuff's awesome. So... There, I mean, like there's a small carry-on. There's a larger carry-on that you can split into two different bags if the overhead bins are only small enough to fit mm. a backpack. Um, you know, you, you literally you can unzip it and break it into two bags, and then it'll fit into the tiny overhead. Uh, they've got a big checked bag, a duffel bag, a backpack that is six different kinds of genius. So I'll be using the seventy-five centimeter long. You know Checkable uh, Bag Mm -hmm. It's got Two Big Cavernous Compartments A space For small items You might need Like medications Um, The wheels are big Handy thing For rolling over Cobblestones In old European cities Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Pull out handle Is sturdy Something that I Commonly see Fail on suitcases yes. when I'm yes. in the in the airport is like oh that's not going to last much or that's already dead so yeah mm-hmm. a really sturdy handle um, and I'll be using one of those backpacks the four liter subterra. Travel backpack. It's got a side zips to get to give you quick access to your laptop when you get to security. So you just slide the laptop out the side of the backpack instead of having to nice. unzip right. the whole thing. Right. Uh, there's a dedicated cool. pocket for uh, for tablets, so a little smaller pocket. Um, and then there's this uh, strap on the you know the side of the backpack that's up against your back that you can slip over the handle of the subterra luggage so that it can ride on top of your luggage as you're pulling your bag wherever. Mm. And it'll just sit up there instead of you know you having another half an hour with it on your back. It's pretty genius. Um, so I've used those along with that zip and half, 55 centimeter subterra pretty extensively. And I'll say that I've encountered... Other luggage that has more different compartments for organization. I really haven't encountered anything as well made and as durable. And Lord knows when you're flying, durability is really pretty key. You know, this is stuff I mean honestly, it's it's what you would expect from a company that you've come to trust to take care of your bike when you're carrying it outside of your car. Nice. That's All right. you know, that's oh. a lot of trust, right?
1: Do they make a bike box? Oh,
0: yeah. Okay, okay. I was going to say they should. They they make a couple of different bike carriers, yeah. and what's really amazing about those, uh, I reviewed one two years ago? Yeah, or I guess a year ago. The, the frame at the bottom of the bike carrier that you strap your bike to, that mm-hmm. comes out of the carrier itself, and then the supports that help... Uh, stiffen the sides Of the carrier mm-hmm. I've got the soft-sided one They also make a hard case But the supports That help stiffen up the sides Come out And they form three legs That will hold that frame Up off the ground Turning it into a bike stand To help you assemble your bike After you've gotten wow. there it's That's pretty cool Yeah, it's really, really bright uh, such, such good stuff Yeah, they're doing incredible work You know And so as they move into other areas. I always take a, a hard look at what it is they're doing because their stuff is so well thought out. Sweet. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I think that's a wrap for this episode. What are you doing this weekend now that it's fall?
1: Oh, I'm recovering this weekend. It's been a, <laughs> yeah. It's it's just, it really, you know, it's, it's been, my season start so early. I usually start around February and like just to pull it this far into the year is a, uh, I, I'm always ready to be done by this point. So, I, dude, we're still cleaning up from Unpaved. I've got to clean up from Iron Cross. It's a lot of cleaning up. And um, I won't be getting much cleaning done, will I? Because it is the Philly, Philadelphia Bike Expo. Oh, right. have fun so, there. Yeah, I'm presenting on Sunday at noon. Mm-hmm. Um, how to... Uh, how they had they have it? They titled it something like "How to be an, an amazing weekend bike racer and still keep your life" or something like that. I can't remember what they gave. It. Basically, fit it all like in? how to yeah how to fit it all in. <laughs> um, so I'll be down there at noon, and, and it's a cool show. If anyone's in the area, definitely check it out. Philadelphia's is uh, an unsung city in my mind in many, many, many ways. But yeah. in, the bike culture is is incredible. It's really great, and you'll get a real taste for um, what that local scene is all about. It's very fun. Very, cool. very, good time.
0: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we go, I'd like to put in a plug for RKP's other podcast, The Pull. The show features artisans talking about the craft in one-on-one interviews. Thank Terry Gross for the bike set. Our next episode will be Peter Flax, former RKP contributor, current Cycling Tips contributor, former Editor-in-Chief of Bicycling, and current Editor-in-Chief of the Red Bulletin, Red Bulls magazine of radness. And I'm pretty sure I gave all of those qualifications in <laughs> reverse order. <laughs> Rather selfishly.
1: That's uh, all right.
0: Uh, I should say regarding our next few weeks, because I will be on an island halfway around the world, we will be running episodes of Paceline Line Tandem with Celine's previously excerpted interviews with Shannon Bufton, who did the Eversting, or someone in Shannon Bufton's team, and then Sarah Lee, the vet who biked across the country backward. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, she did. Once,
0: once I'm back in mid-November, we'll get back on track. Be sure to stay tuned uh, for a very jet-lagged host. <laughs> uh, we hope you've enjoyed the show, and if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with Celine Yeager. Thanks for listening to the Pace Line.